You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. All right, so today we're reading from John chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Um, just as you pull out your Bibles or your phones, I'll introduce myself. Um, I'm Jo, and during the week I'm a primary school teacher, um, and I also serve on the host team. So if you are interested in joining our host team or want to find out a little bit more, I'd love to chat to you after the service. All right, let's read, starting at John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Joe. Well, good morning again, City on a Hill. Good to have you with us. just met some newcomers in the meet and mingle, so I'm aware that some of us have just joined us now. Uh, but you have joined us six weeks in to a seven-week series. So we're on the, the back end, and we're right in this series called The Seven Signs of Jesus, because one of Jesus' best friends, John, in his eyewitness testimony, wanted to tell us seven particular miracles, seven particular signs that Jesus performed through his miracles, uh, th- through his ministry so that he might point us to who Jesus is. So we're going to look at the, the sixth one that we just had read out for us today. Uh, why don't we still ourselves, center ourselves on, on what God wants to say to us today by praying. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we, we thank you that this series and, and the reality that there are signs uh, sent into the world and written down in your holy word so that we might know you. And we thank you that what that reveals about you Uh, that you want us to know you. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning, wherever we're at, wherever our minds are traveling, wherever our hearts are at, whatever our emotional state, Lord, you might, by your Holy Spirit, come and speak to us today. Come and use your word to to pierce into the circumstances of our lives and particularly the state of our hearts so that you might have something to say to us. And would you, Lord, point us, as your Holy Spirit always does, Point us to your son, Jesus, to who he is, to what he has done for us, and therefore who we should get up and go to be based on your word to us this morning. So come and do that, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, as as Joe just read out for us, we're in in John chapter 9 today, and it is a, a crazy story, an incredible sign and you might have noticed from that short reading that we had that really just focuses in, as Pat said, just on the, on, on the sign itself, but the rest of the chapter will, will detail some of the conversation from there. You might have noticed that, that Jesus brings up this, this contrast between darkness and light. John particularly has brought up these themes before, but Jesus does in this chapter. He said, this incredible phrase, I am the light of the world. There's something in that that contrast that Jesus wants to use today 
to say something to you, to say something to us, to speak into our world and into the state of our hearts. Talking about darkness and light. I remember when I was a a teenager, I used to stay at uh, one of my mates' house very regularly uh, on the weekends, and um, he lived next to a school, and we would always take the opportunity, uh, once his parents went to bed, to to sneak out at night and, and head out hit the streets uh, at night. These days, I'm of the age where if I hear what sound like youthful voices walking outside my house late at night, I think, what are these losers doing? Like, get to bed. (laughs) But back then, I was one of those young punks, one of those losers. Uh, And it didn't really matter where we went. We had no agenda. We were just just enjoying the fact that, that we were out. We were enjoying the fact that it was dark and we were outside the house beyond parental supervision. And because I lived next to a school, often we would head into the school. Uh, and, you know, schools these days, they often have sails uh, over the, the playgrounds or the courtyard areas. We would climb those sails and we would jump and do somersaults on those sails. And, and that was, I guess, representative of what was going on in our hearts. We were free. We were happy. And it was dark. See, the point wasn't that we had heaps to do. The point was there was just something intoxicating about being out and about, something, something dangerous, something that scratched that teenage rebellious itch. Now, I know that nothing good happens after 10 p.m. Uh, but as we saw last week in John, John made this, this connection, and that's why I bring it up, that, that there's something within us that, that knows something without having to be taught it about darkness. That is, the, the darkness is, is ominous. My kids haven't had to teach them this, but, but they're scared of it. They're, they're threatened by it. There's, there's something in the darkness. Many years ago, in the midst of World War II, uh, Winston Churchill uh, foresaw the lights going out across Europe, and, and you might have seen the movie, The Darkest Hour. Uh, there's something in that title, because it's taken from a speech of Winston Churchill, who, who, as he saw the impending threat of Hitler, said, if we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. He's getting there something in our our human consciousness, that light and darkness are not just these physical categories, but but represent moral categories. And today, in this moment, in the life of Jesus, this conversation that flows from this sign all about light and darkness, we're going to see that what our world knows in part, Jesus is revealing to us in full, that light and darkness have even more deeper reality, more deeper representation than just moral categories, but rather speak even into the spiritual part of our lives into spiritual realities. So we're going to get into the text and, and hopefully I can, I can point out how that is showing us uh, that. Uh, but this week, we, we don't need to read, as we have in last week's, kind of into so much and, and play out or parse out all the, all the connections into this text. Because in this sign, Jesus just speaks plainly what he means by it. And so we're going to see that today. But before we get to John 9, I've got to start setting the scene. Last week, we were in John chapter 6. And you might remember, if you were here last week, that, that John used a particular sign, or Jesus used a particular sign to point out something about himself. He, he, he turned a boy's play lunch to feed upwards of, of 20,000 people. And then he said, I am the bread of life. And so he used the image of bread to point to his identity as the bread of life. Then John chapter 7 comes along. 
And John points out at the very start of John chapter 7, the time of year that it was. It was the Feast of Booths was at hand, we're told in in John chapter 7, verse 2. John often likes to put in these little details because he's writing to a mixed audience, not his whole audience like us. We're not going to know what the significance of that that is, and so he, he wants us to know where and when these things happened. This Feast of Booths was an annual festival where, where all the Jews descended upon Jerusalem and they brought tents with them and they slept in tents for seven nights to celebrate and to remember, commemorate the fact that God oversaw his people through the wilderness when they were confined to booths from Egypt to the Promised Land. Now, as time went on uh, celebrating the Feast of Booths, The Jews, within that week, added a lot of other ceremonies. And one of them was a water-pouring ceremony to remember how God provided water to them in the wilderness. And so uh, every day, the officiating priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam and and pour it into a basin uh, on the altar in the temple. And it's so significant, then, uh, that Jesus wants to point that out and use that, not just the bread, but now the water, to point to who he is. And so in John chapter 7, verse 37... It says that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. And so Jesus uses bread in John chapter 6. Jesus uses water in John chapter 7. And that brings us to John chapter 8. Now the kind of intensity is arising because Jesus keeps using these symbols to to point out who he is. And by John chapter 8, he almost drops the symbols and just speaks plainly about who he is. But he's got one, less, one more symbol in him. He starts talking about light. John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it gets to the point at the end of John chapter 8 where, where Jesus yells it out plainly. He says to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders who were there, that great phrase that we looked at last week, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Doesn't make sense to our English tenses. But he says, ego, Amy, I am. Everybody who heard him knew what Jesus was saying. And so John tells us, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so last week in the text, in John 6, the crowd wanted to make him king and he retreated. This week, in John 8, the crowd wants to kill him, and he retreats. And that brings us to where we are today, John chapter 9. Because the rocks are still in the Pharisees' hands, readying themselves to throw at Jesus. And Jesus walks away. And on his walk away, in John chapter 9, verse 1, we're told as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And so he's just talked about light, and he can kind of, if you get that context in view, see in Jesus' minds the cog ticking over about what he could use here to demonstrate the reality that he is the light of the world. He sees a man who has never seen light his whole life. And so he sees this as an opportunity to not just talk about being the light of the world, but right now to demonstrate it. But before we get there, disciples interrupt. They, they, they can't see what's going on in, in Jesus' mind. Uh, they want to theologize about how this man who's blind became blind. 
the common thought at the time was that if someone was born with a disability, then that disability must have a cause, and that cause must be the, the generational sins of the parents that went before them. And so they ask him in, in verse 2 and 3, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a a big couple of verses on on God's sovereignty and human responsibility. should be very good for your soul if you could tease out that tension. We won't have time to do it today. But put simply, Jesus responds by saying, guys, you're giving way too much credit to humanity. Yes, suffering exists because sin is in the world, because the fabric of our world was torn when we rebelled against God. But we go too far if we personalise and apply that reality to someone individually. The book of Job is all about this. You might have heard the story of Job. Job suffers incredibly. He loses all that he has. And then his friends come along and they tell him, Job, everything in your life is terrible and it must all be your fault. You must have some sin within you that has caused this, that deserves this. And Job is adamant that my my conscience is clear. There's nothing in me that that, that seems to have have caused this. And instead, God comes along right at the end. If you ever need to pick me up, just just turn to Job chapter 38 and read the rest of the book of Job. God comes along and he, he sets the record straight. He rebukes all of the friends for blaming Job and says that, that Job hasn't actually done anything wrong. See, where we like to insert our own explanations, God's okay with us holding the mystery. Where we see meaningless suffering, Jesus comes along and says, hey, God's going to use that to display something about who he is. And he's going to do that right now. And so he says in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And so he brings up light and darkness, day and night. See, the disciples, just like you and me, we, we, we live in the daytime. Jesus has come, and even, is, even still, is now here. He said at the end of his ministry, I will be with you until the end of the age. The by his Holy Spirit, he, he still ministers amongst us, but night is coming when no one can work, when, when, when no longer can we point people to the works of God. But it will be the end. Jesus says, verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So unlike the other signs where we had to draw the the connections out to work out what is Jesus really trying to say through this miracle, Jesus is plain. He is about to demonstrate that he is the light of the world. And so here comes the sign. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. And so Jesus doesn't do this miracle kind of behind closed doors, doesn't have like when you go to the optometrist, go step into that little dark room and then comes out, oh, oh, it worked. He's healed. No, he does it in a way that cannot possibly be misconstrued. He sends him to the same pool that every single day of the last eight days over this feast, people have kind of put their attention and their focus on. He sends him to that pool to go wash. And he uses the mud 
And there's a couple of, you know, we could speculate about what's the point of the mud? What's the point of, uh, of the washing? I think uh, he uses the mud so that the guy would have to be sent to the pool of Siloam, which itself means sent to wash, as if to triple emphasize that Jesus himself is the one who has been sent to be the light of the world. And so as we have in every week of this sign, we've, we've pointed to what's the big idea? What does the sign say? And then we wanted to apply it. Here's the, here's the big idea. Here is what the sign is saying. Jesus is the light of the world sent to help you see. Jesus is the light of the world sent to help you see. I mentioned uh, just briefly the, the, the imagery of a water, the significance of water at the Feast of Booths. Well, there's a lot of symbolism around the feasts and the festivals, and particularly about light as well. Every night across the Feast of Booths, the community witnessed what was called the illumination of the temple, where there were these four big columns, 20 metres high, torches, oil lamps that would be lit. And they were apparently so strong that the light would emanate from out of the temple across the whole city. Incredible sight. So you've got to picture it. Every single night, they've seen these massive torches light up the whole city. The warmth of those torches has hit every one of the Jews' faces. And then Jesus comes along on the last day and says, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus sends this blind man who has never seen light in his whole life to a pool called Scent, so that he could show the world, so that he could show you and me that he is the sent one to help us to see. And so what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Let's talk about that. I've got, I got three things that it means for you. The first is that Jesus is sent to guide us. Jesus is sent to guide us. One of the reasons that the illumination of the temple uh, was a ceremony within the Feast of Booths Feast of Booths, remembering the whole wilderness journey, the illumination of the temple reminded them that God guided them throughout that wilderness journey and he guided them in a way that we know from the book of of Numbers by a a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. These high and huge torches were so big because they were there to, to represent this pillar of fire that had led the Israelites for the 40 years of their wilderness journey. And so it reminded them that God would be their guide into the future. And so that's perhaps the most literal application of what has happened here to this blind man. Because his whole life, he's had to be taken by the hand and guided. His whole life, he's had to be, had colours described to him, never been able to enjoy them for himself. Where he needs to walk, oh, watch this, look out there. And now, one encounter with Jesus, and he could finally see. The implication for us is that apart from Jesus, apart from the light of the world coming into our lives, then you and I remain in darkness. You and I have no idea about where to go. I recently watched the the Netflix documentary series, Bad Surgeon, uh, which details the the horrific story, horrible story, uh, of this surgeon named Paolo Maccarini. Uh, It's a three-part series, and and near the beginning, uh, I was struck by what one of the uh, 
interviewees, one of the, one of the people involved in, in, in the story said, as they reflected on just the significance of putting your trust in a surgeon. Now, we have a lot of surgeons and doctors in our church. We praise God for you. Uh, but there's a lot of weight upon your shoulders. Uh, this guy pointed out that, you know, there is perhaps no other situation in all of our lives where in surgery, you go under, you're completely out of it, and then you're just there, a limp body, and completely at the whim of a surgeon to do what they feel they need to do to help you. Such was the case with, with this guy. People entrusted their lives to, to this Paolo surgeon. As it turned out, he was essentially using experimental techniques upon them, uh, which led to disastrous and deadly outcomes. But it stands out as, as a tale. I was struck as I, as I wrapped up watching it, that, that who we follow, who we look up to, who we set as an authority, authority in our lives to lead us, to guide us, who we entrust ourselves to, can sometimes be a matter of life and death. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I am the light of the world, he's telling us that he's the only authority. He's the only trustworthy guide to lead us where we need to go. He's the one that we can follow. He's the one that we can trust. He's the one that we can entrust ourselves to. We see throughout the, the ministry of Jesus and then beyond in the word of God that Jesus speaks to every area of our lives. Sex, money, relationships, marriage, singleness, ambition, parenting, childhood. He speaks to the very heart of who, what it means to be a human, who we are and where we're going. Well, this sign tells us we should listen to him. He is the light of the world. If Jesus tells us that we're blind, we should consider that. We should think about that. He might be onto something. If Jesus tells us that he's the way, the truth, and the life, we should lean in to him. If Jesus tells us that he's come to offer us life and life to the full, we can believe him. Jesus is the light of the world, like a, a pillar of fire for us to lead us and show us the way. The second thing this, this sign highlights comes through the, the conversation that follows the sign uh, throughout the rest of the chapter uh, in John chapter 9. Number two, Jesus is sent to expose us. Jesus is sent to expose us. The, the publicity of the miracle, uh, we, we kind of see that in, in the verses that follow. Uh, and we'll get to the kind of the detail and the quotes in, in the next point. But the text goes through the reactions of first the, the neighbors uh, talking about this guy that they have known for all of their lives and now can suddenly see. Uh, then goes to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees hear about it, and it happened on a Sabbath, so they launch an investigation, and they then go to his parents, and they ask him about his parents since he was born blind, and then they finally go straight to the source, and they ask the man himself, who is this guy that healed you? And the man says in, in verse 32, never since the world began had it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, that's not what the, the Pharisees wanted to hear. And so they immediately send the guy out of their presence. And then Jesus steps back in. 
And we get this conversation, short, brief conversation, right at the end of the chapter about, with, between Jesus and the Pharisees. He's, he's told them at this point that he's God. They wanted to put him to death. He's told them that he's the, the light of the world. And now he's healed a man who's been in darkness his whole life. And he says this, verse 39. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so here we get right to the, the pointy end of the sign. Jesus is telling the Pharisees that he has come to expose the spiritual blindness of those who think, as they did, that they were spiritually enlightened. See, light guides us, yes, but light also exposes what's there. It exposes the mess in particular that we have on the, on the, on the dark side, underneath, and for us, the mess on the inside of ourselves. See, we live in a day where, where our world is in the grip of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That we're, we've kind of, we've graduated beyond everything that our, our ancestors believed. We scoff as we look back at history and, and can't even fathom how people could think that they had any sort of intelligence about themselves, believing in, in, in pagan gods, believing in, in, in a monotheistic God, anything. We see ourselves on the right side of history. And why wouldn't we? All the progress that's been made. We've come through the enlightenment, which is interesting language. And so we've graduated, haven't we, out of our need for God. We've got all the explanations we need to step in to the future of peace, harmony, justice, reconciliation, righteousness. But at the same time as we think that, we also see on our screens that our ideals smash into the brick wall of reality. It reminds me of a quote by Oxford professor John Lennox. He's debated some of the world's leading atheists. Uh, and in response to a quote by Stephen Hawking, who, who wrote that religion was just a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark, Lennox replied that atheism is just a fairy tale for people afraid of the light. But in this moment, Jesus isn't speaking in generalities, or, or he's not thinking in, in broad strokes about societies and generations, that we could apply it that way. No, he's speaking about you and about me, personally. He's telling us that, that our hearts are blind if we see no need for help. That our hearts are blind if we see no need for guidance. Our hearts are blind if we see no need for salvation. Our hearts are blind if we see no blindness within ourselves. And so Jesus has come to expose that, to expose us. He's telling the religious leaders, the ones who think they have it all together, are we also blind? He's telling them, you're blind. So what he's doing is something that, that we need to take to heart. Because we live in a part of the world, eastern suburbs of Melbourne, where we are perhaps most prone of many different cultures and societies throughout the earth, perhaps we are we're high up on the list of being most prone to looking like we have it all together. And so we're perhaps most prone to, to stepping in, relaxing into, leaning on our public perception 
as the Pharisees did. But Jesus is coming along and telling them that they need to repent of their righteousness. They need to repent of relying on their own resources. They need to repent of prioritizing that public perception, the facade, over the matters of the heart. Because in their hearts, just as in our hearts, was greed, pride, envy, cutting people down, dehumanizing those around us, lust, unspoken competitiveness between and amongst one another. Like them, we're so prone to say, we see. And Jesus says, so our guilt remains. And so the question before them, the question before us is, how will we respond to Jesus? How will we respond personally to Jesus? I remember once years ago, I, was at, I went to a party uh, uh, at the, the, the top level of the Rialto, the Rialto, formerly known as the highest tower in Melbourne. Uh, and one of my friends there had recently been on a holiday uh, and uh, evidently in some dodgy back room of a Southeast Asian market had, had bought himself a laser. He had this, this like laser pen uh, and, and it was kind of the first time he'd taken it out. It's now at a social function and he was high up on the Rialto. And so you know what he's doing with that laser. He, he's looking out on the streets of Melbourne with this high-powered laser pointing it around the, 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 the inner city of Melbourne. Now, this is one of those high-powered lasers that, uh, that is, you know, no one ever really knows, but it's kind of word on the street. Is, I think this is illegal. I, I don't think you, sh- you should, be, should, be, should be doing this. But from the heights of the Rialto there, he was, he was shining out, and because it was dark, you could see the, the beam the, the whole way. Now, those lasers, we think, are illegal because if you get one in the eye, you're going to go blind. It's dangerous. It's like a portable solar eclipse. You look at it, you're done. Now, there's a famous saying in the Puritan era that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. What we see in the Bible is that sometimes God's grace shines upon us and opens our eyes. Sometimes God's grace shines upon our hearts and it softens our hearts. And we melt before God and we, we, we lean into his grace, his mercy, his kindness. We see our sin, we see his uh, supremacy and we come before him in repentance and faith and we trust in him. But then there's people like these Pharisees who encounter God's grace and it doesn't soften them but harden them. It doesn't help them see but it blinds them all the more. It exposes the hardness of their heart, the callousness that was there. That God's grace just, just bounces off their hearts, such is the hardness of them. And here in this moment, it's revealing that they are committed to rejecting Jesus. There is such hatred and animosity in their hearts that there is no room for God's word and Jesus' words to pierce their hearts. But notice that because Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts, notice therefore what that tells us about how trustworthy Jesus really is for us. God himself in the flesh, Jesus, even now, as he did back then, knows everything within us. Jesus knows everything in your heart. Jesus knows every thought that's been played through your head. Jesus knows every potential action that you've had to talk yourself back from. He knows everything we do. He knows everything we fail to do. He knows the same about the Pharisees. He knows the same about the man who was born blind. And he knows the same about you and me. And that reality is incredibly profound. 
Because Jesus' response to knowing everything about us and what's going on in our hearts isn't, oh gosh, I'm so disappointed. Isn't, oh wow, I really thought this person had potential, but obviously not. No, Jesus' response to even knowing our hearts is the fact that he's here in this story. He's he's presenting himself before the people saying, I am the light of the world. That that verse in in John chapter 7, when when he first brought up this image, was whoever could come to me and receive from me and be led by me into the light of life. Whoever. And so Jesus offers all of us a way out of the darkness, especially the spiritual darkness within our own hearts. All are welcome. All are invited. Everyone and anyone. doesn't matter what you've done or what you've left undone. Jesus has come for you. In him, we can be washed. We can have our eyes opened because Jesus is the light of the world who's been sent for you. That reality is ironic given what would happen to Jesus because Jesus stands here offering light in the daytime. And yet at the end of his, end of his life, under the cover of darkness, Jesus would be arrested and betrayed. That he'd be falsely accused, he'd be beaten and mocked and bruised, and then he'd be sentenced to death on a cross. And as he hung on that cross, the Bible tells us that darkness came over the land. Darkness seemed to be beating light. The pillar of fire, the light of the world, the one who put the sun in its place, was now submitting, alone, abandoned, and in darkness. And Jesus died. And the light of the world, the great torch of the world, was snuffed out. But he was snuffed out because he took on your darkness, my darkness. And then three days later, at first light, the light of the world arose. And in doing so, Jesus shows us how he responds to our darkness, that he takes it upon himself so that he might defeat it and replace it with the light of life. And so if Jesus can make that kind of offer with the kind of knowledge that he has about you and about me, then what can't you entrust to him? That if there was anyone whom before it would be safe to go under and to give complete control and access to yourself, to your life, to your heart, it would be someone who has come in and seen all that you are and offered all of themselves anyway. And that's what Jesus has done for you. Jesus is the light of the world. He's sent into the world to guide you, sent into the world to expose you. But that leads us to number three. Jesus is sent to save us. Jesus is sent to save us. We see, uh, as we go through the, the, the conversation that follows the sign, all these different reactions to the man and to what Jesus has done for the man who was born blind. First, we hear about the neighbours. John tells us in, in verse 8, the neighbours and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, he, it is he. And others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. And so the man gets taken to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are already triggered by what Jesus has said to this point. But the question to the man turns not from, were you really blind before? But who is this Jesus? And so they say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. That's the Pharisees' opinion. 
And so then they talk to, to the parents and the parents are too afraid to say what they really think because John tells us that there'd already been a kind of a, a sign-off that anyone who says that Jesus is the Christ needs to be thrown out and excommunicated. And so it comes full circle to the man. And Jesus has a final conversation with him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So notice that, that train of responses. The neighbours can't believe it. The Pharisees refuse to believe it. The parents, too scared to believe it. And the man can't not believe it. The person and work of Jesus forces all of us to have that same question put before us. The Pharisees ask the man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Jesus asks the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this sign today asks us the same question. What do, you, what, do you, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? If you're here and you're trusting in Jesus, you probably sung at one point, I once was blind and now I see. But the story of the man physically here is the story of all two and a half billion Christians around the world spiritually. That once we were blind and yet God sees our blindness and yet offers us light and sight and he turns it so that our hearts, our eyes might be opened. This sign asks us, do you want that? Will you see that? Will you respond to Jesus by seeing him for who he is? What will we do with Jesus? Let me finish by pointing us to a very famous painting. You might have seen it before. 150 years ago, an artist, William Holman Hunt, painted this painting called The Light of the World. And at the time, it was described as one of the most perfect things modern art has produced. And it went on a world tour some 50 years after it was painted. And apparently, uh, yeah, there was a great revival in Australia at the time because 80% of Australians at the time, there were 5 million Australians in, at the turn of the 20th century, 80% went to go see it. And it's a picture here of Jesus, lamp in one hand, knocking on a door that's over, covered over with vines and, and all sorts of, of, of overgrowth. And the door is meant to symbolize your heart and mine. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, Revelation 3 tells us. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It reminds us that the light of the world wants to enter your life. The light of the world wants to change your heart. Jesus wants you to trust him. But on the door, probably can't see it from this distance, but on the door there is no handle. For the handle is, is meant to be only on the inside. We can turn the handle. We can open the door by entrusting our lives to Jesus. And so if you're here and you're just considering Jesus, why don't you make today the day that, yes, can continue to consider Jesus, but start entrusting yourself to him as well. Entrust your life to Jesus. Start following his words as a, as a pattern for your life, but even more than that, start leaning upon by faith the reality that he lived your life, he died your death, he rose again. Jesus wants to guide you, Jesus wants to expose you, Jesus wants to save you because Jesus loves you. 
He has come for that purpose. And he loves you too much to keep you in the dark. And so this healing moment came at a, a prominent time uh, or a prominent festival in the Jewish calendar. Today, uh, you might have seen as we made your way in, but, but we're going to celebrate our own Christian festival, the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he showed how the Passover, that, that formative moment in the history of, of Israel, was actually all about him. He was the lamb who would be slain. His blood, if placed over the door of our hearts, can mean that God's judgment will pass over us because it's already landed on Jesus. That's the offer to you today, to be made right with the God who made you, the God who loves you, that God has done all he can to come and show you his love for you. The question like this sign is, will we see it? Will we open our eyes to see what the Lord has done? On that night, the first communion, Jesus was about to be betrayed and arrested under the cover of darkness. But he highlighted that what was going on wasn't so much about the betrayal. It wasn't so much about the arrest. It wasn't so much about the authorities who were going to now take and do what they want with him. No, what was going on was Jesus was laying down his life. Jesus was giving up his life. He was the one who is in control. He was the one who was generously offering his life, his body, his blood. He was giving his life up for you, for us. And so we remember today the, the most influential moment in all of human history. And if you are trusting in him, the influential, most influential moment in your life, the death of Jesus in your place. We're going to partake of the juice together that we're reminded of his blood shed for us and for the forgiveness of our sin. We're going to partake of the, the bread together uh, to remind us of his body given for us and our salvation. Communion is a family meal for all those who are trusting in Jesus. And so if you're here and you are trusting in Jesus, if that trust just started a few minutes ago, join us. You are more than welcome. If you're here and you're still considering uh, who Jesus is, let me encourage you to let that plate pass you by as it gets handed out in a moment. I'm going to pray that we might lean in all the more upon Jesus, who is the light of the world sent for us to guide us, expose us, and to save us. Will we receive that salvation today? The choice is yours. As the plates are passed around, if you need gluten-free, it's in the middle of the plate. Feel free to grab that. But please hold on to the elements. The band's going to come up and lead us in song. And then after the first song, I'm going to come back and we're going to partake of those elements together. Let's pray. I am the light of the world. Jesus, we praise you for what you've revealed to us about yourself in this passage. We praise you that your revelation didn't stay at mere words, as powerful as those are, but you demonstrated it in healing this man born blind. Lord, we confess that we see ourselves in this man. Lord, there has never been a day where our hearts have loved you wholeheartedly. There's never been a day where uh, our nature isn't to, to shirk being right with you. And yet, Lord, still, You've been so gracious, so merciful, so kind that you've pursued us in coming yourself, in, in Jesus, physically. 
laying down your life for us through your body and your blood so that we might know you, that we might be made right with you. Lord, we thank you that you've helped us see. We thank you that you've been sent to help us see. Lord, we pray that you might open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, if anyone here in the, in the hearing of my voice needs their heart to be open to you, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you move amongst us right now? And would you help us see our sin? Would you convict us of even our righteousness and how we put the front of having it all together in front of your goodness and your grace to us? Lord, humble us that we might be able to see ourselves for who we really are. Humble us that we might be able to see you for who you, you really are and that we might be able to run to you and entrust ourselves to you. Do that work in us, we pray. And may this communion moment be a moment for us to celebrate and remember what you've done for us and the most influential moment in our lives for us. Bless us now, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.